The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Let us focus on our last satsang in this season that is focusing on the wisdom, the essential wisdom coming from the discourse, from the discourses and teachings of Gautama Buddha. In our last satsang, we had just finished his famous speech, which was turning the wheel of the Dharma, setting the wheel of the Dharma into motion. And um, I wanted to add one last session of talking about the teachings of the Buddha in meditating on some of his words and statements about the state of compassion. Exactly as the word love is associated always with Jesus. You say love, you say Jesus, you say Jesus, you say love. Exactly in the same way the word compassion is associated, is one of the specific flavors of Buddha. Jesus comes with his love from the heart and Buddha comes with his compassion from the heart and the mind, from Anahata and Ajna. And it is not possible to really express at this point if any one of them is a superior expression to the other. You can say, well, Gautama Buddha's is more complete because it is heart and the third eye, and the third eye has a higher vibration than the heart chakra, strictly speaking. On the other hand, can, you can say, but the heart chakra is the center of the chakra system, three chakras above, three chakras below, so the heart chakra is the place where the heaven and the earth are meeting. It's the archetypal place. The heart chakra is the place of Jivatman, is the place of the self. And therefore, the heart chakra is like the ultimate place of reflection of the divine truth. And thus, it's better to keep it pure in the heart. All these, I gave you two examples of an argument pro-compassion and pro-love, which can show that if we keep this at the level of the mind, we can argue. But actually, when we go at the level of the love and compassion itself, there is no argument. There is no need for any argument of any kind. It is exactly like the devotees from India, who one day they love Kali, they worship Kali because it is her festival, and they love Kali, and they go full on, and Kali is the greatest, Kali is the best for them. And then the same devotees, one month later, they worship Tara or Sundari, Srividya, and then Tara is the best, Tara is the greatest, Tara is the one to be loved. Like the heart always chooses its target as supreme. And that's why we cannot really put a comparison between love and compassion, except in a technical way. In a yogic way, we can describe that in the love of Jesus, which is so overwhelming. I have seen mystics who lived this love, and in the middle of the winter they would take off their shoes from their feet and give it to the beggar, to a beggar on the street who had no shoes. No, like really living it out completely and uh, in, a, in a very consistent way, in a very with integrity, like no, with no hypocrisy, like really, really walking the talk. And so I have seen that, 
And yet, in all these Christian teachings, including the teachings from many saints, you don't find too much references of compassion towards nature, animals. Yes, of course, they would expect that if you are a loving soul, you would not, well, like, you are not just going to love human beings and hurt animals. But still, it's not written. It is not like in many Christian circles, vegetarianism had not been enjoyed, enjoined or enforced in any way. It was like, okay, people would eat whatever God has given to us food on the face of this earth, and so on. While, in the case of compassion, this concern for everything due to Ajna Chakra, Anahata Chakra is still a personal chakra. You are treating God in a personal way and by loving God as a father, as daddy, as the word Ava, Abba, which Jesus used, the Aramaic word for, which is a diminutive, it's the word for daddy which small children would use. And by using this personal contact with God, you actually reach transcendence in a, in a peculiar way. But still, Anahata Chakra is a chakra which is generally personal. That means people that love from Anahata Chakra, they want a personal love. And the, the transfer point, the transit point, the transcendence point is Vishuddha Chakra. People who have no Vishuddha Chakra, who have a blockage of Vishuddha Chakra, they don't manage to love transpersonally, if you want impersonally, if you want universally, unconditional. Unconditional it can be, but definitely not so universal. And that's why in the moment when you add Ajna Chakra to that equation, which is difficult, many people would have problems with it, then automatically you can see that this love suddenly addresses, wait a second, it's not only about love thy neighbor, but thy neighbor means a lot of things. Thy neighbor means mother nature. Thy neighbor means all the sentient beings. And thus, the concept becomes much, much bigger. It, of course, doesn't mean that it is applied as such. You can go in many Buddhist countries and find out that people are not at all vegetarian, although in the concept of Buddhism, so close to the teachings of Mahavira in Jainism, you would expect that automatically would understand that as a corollary of compassion, of loving kindness. You have loving kindness, then you don't want to kill one little extra animal for your own benefit if you could get away with it. For example, in the Buddhist environment, the Dalai Lama has declared some 10-15 years ago that his personal physician, Tibetan doctor, told him that for his body structure, he needed to consume meat two times per week. Per week. And he does. So the Dalai Lama is not 100% vegetarian. And he said that it was the requirement of the doctor and his duty as a bodhisattva to maintain his body for as long as possible to be useful to the Tibetan community and to the world at large. Then non-vegetarianism is not a problem if it is the doctor's advice. Remember that some people abuse it a lot. Like some people go to fake doctors who are ready to sell their services and they are not going to give you a moral or ethical, dispassionate type of advice, 
And if you tell them, oh, I'm so uh, weak that I need to eat some meat, I cannot fast, I cannot, and the doctor will say, yeah, 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 of course, you don't need to. That's generally, I'm not talking about that. That's not a moral endorsement. It's a moral endorsement when you look at all the factors included in it. So, what I'm trying to say is that, of course, uh, the very concept of compassion is so difficult that even in the Buddhist communities, most people cannot live up to it. They know about compassion. They have seen compassion in action and in Jainism and with the yogis from India and in many other places and many yogis from Tibet as well. And still they would not live up to it. That's why both uh, the idea of love as expressed by Christ and the idea of compassion as expressed by Buddha, they represent some of the highest feelings accessible to the human being. Never forget that compassion appears in the human aura as one of the highest colors which can ever manifest in the aura of a human being, and that is golden yellow, like liquid sunshine in one's aura. This color in the aura, that's why you see it on the circles around the heads of the saints in Christianity. Like many things are made of, and that's why the Buddhas themselves are painted in gold, and people put gold leaves on them, and there is so much of this golden color. This golden color is corresponding to a real color from the aura, which is very, very difficult, which is very, very rare. When any one of you performs Trataka and gets to see in somebody's aura or around somebody golden yellow, you are dealing already with a person whose vibrations of the aura are very refined and very spiritualized. That's why to reach true compassion is not an easy task. It activates your heart and it activates your third eye. And to make it so powerful that it appears as a significant change in your aura, like to have enough percentage of golden yellow in your aura so that it becomes perceivable, it's not just a speck here and there. It's really it. This is indeed so very rare. That's why we cannot value and we cannot praise enough this idea of compassion and the uses of it so many people the whole world needs love and the whole world needs compassion in a certain way you can see that compassion is a sort of universal manifestation a horizontal manifestation of love because when jesus himself described love he divided love in two points he asked one of the jewish scholars who uh, who was one of his followers one of his sympathizers he asked him, what is the greatest law? And that man quoted from the Jewish traditional law, the law which the forefathers had, which said that one human being, thou, shall love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your soul, with all your heart. And Jesus was touched, like any spiritual person hearing this sentence, even spoken by a kindergarten kid, would get goosebumps and be touched. You know, like, you are a man, according to my heart. You said a truth with which I resonate 100%. Like I'm on the same page for you 
and I just love you because you said that sentence. You know, like I knew it very well and I could have said it, but hearing it said by someone else, it's like it's so rewarding. And Jesus then came and said, well, there is another law which is as great as the first. He adds, this one was not written in the law. It was not written by the ancient Jewish prophets. So it is Jesus who formulates it, but he formulates it so strongly because he said there is another law which is not lesser than the first one. Like there are two fundamental laws. And he says the second law is that you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And of course, it immediately started manipuristic intellectual reactions from the Jews around because then the Jews started asking, yeah, but who's your neighbor? Because, for example, in Judaism, only the Jews were the chosen ones and everybody else were goim. They were Gentiles. They were outsiders and they were not chosen by God in their view. So are they my neighbor or are they not my neighbor? Because some extreme interpretations of the Jewish mysticism made that you should not uh, financially deprive or, you know, may do something crooked to one of your brethren Jewish. But if it's not Jewish, if it's an outsider, they are a little bit like cattle. You know, you can crook them as much as you want because they don't matter. They are not the chosen brethren of God. And therefore, the question immediately arose, yeah, should love the, you should love God, you should love your neighbor, but who's my neighbor? Is my neighbor only the chosen people of my community or everybody? Who is my, how far should I stretch this neighbor thing? And when Jesus says this, this is the horizontal aspect of love. Like when I say, you shall love God, that's vertical. That's the love between the individual and God. And then you have the love horizontal like the two arms of the cross, that's one of the mystical symbols of the cross, that the cross unites the individual with God, but it also unites humanity in love. This understanding of love finds a brilliant expression in compassion. Compassion is not about you loving Buddha. It's not about aspiration. The first love is aspiration, but the second love is compassion, and this aspect of love has seldom been activated. Like many people say, well, I have enough aspiration. Yeah, what about the second one? What about enough compassion? When does this compassion manifest? How much compassion do we really have? And this aspect is very beautiful because this aspect brings us back to the roots. We have love for God, but why are we going to have love for our neighbor? There is only one fundamental ultimate answer to this. And that answer is not given in dualistic religions. Like in Christianity, it has to be enforced because Jesus said so. And you have to believe it. But it's not really explainable theologically. In Kashmiri Shaivism and in the monistic, in the non-dualistic teachings, of spirituality, that's where it is fully explainable. That is where it is fully there because Shaivas in India, they simply say you love each other because each other is you. There is only one actor in this universe. 
you think that there are gazillions of characters and personalities, but actually, ultimately, there is only one. There is Shiva, who is Nata Raja, the king of the actors and dancers. No, because Shiva dances all the rows. Shiva is you and you and you and I. Shiva is all the persons that exist. He and she and you and I. All the persons of grammatical, of grammar declination are Shiva. And that's why you can love somebody only because that somebody is already you. If there would be in this universe something or somebody that is not you, truly, you wouldn't be able to love them because you would look in their eyes and you wouldn't recognize yourself. You wouldn't recognize the flavor. It's like you are two children belonging to a different mother and father. That's not the case. In every human person and even in animals and even in trees and every sentient being of this universe is shining consciousness and consciousness is only one. That is why with the fact that you love somebody else is nothing else but love for yourself. Rumi has said it in a cryptical way. He speaks to God and he says, I love you, I love myself, I love myself, I love you. It's the same. And many people can object saying, wait a second, whoa, whoa. Like people who love themselves, they are called egoists. No, that's not true. Psychologically, that's a superficial interpretation. Because people who love themselves are not selfish. That's the paradox. And people who are selfish, they don't love themselves. They hate themselves and they usually smoke or drink or whatever they do because they secretly want to destroy themselves and kill themselves and annihilate themselves. Saint Augustine, one of the great early Christian saints, has said it very clearly. He said, if you truly loved yourself, if truly you loved yourself as some people claim that they do, then you would want to give yourself immediately the greatest gift which exists in this universe. And the greatest gift which exists in this universe is salvation, enlightenment, eternal life. So everybody who is not on a spiritual path, they don't love themselves. Because if you'd really love yourself, you'd look in the mirror and you'd say, my God, this wonderful thing that I am is going to disappear. It will go into the tohu vabohu. It will be crushed under the feet of Kali. Kali will dance on this thing and destroy it. How can I save this thing? I love it so much that I would like to make it last forever. That's the proof of love, if you cherish it indeed. And thus, even great mystics have acknowledged that self-love is not the same thing with egoism. Egoism is just an emotional thing which comes from, I want to satisfy my little perks, I want to satisfy my little desires, I want to satisfy my five senses and to give me a little bit of fun here. It's just a junkie addiction where you want endorphins in your brain. You know, you all the time try to please yourself through everything available through the five senses. But that's not love, that's not salvation, that's not eternal life. There's nothing about that. So actually, paradoxically, in spirituality, we say like Rumi, I love God, I love myself, I love myself, I love God. And to the extent where I love myself, to that extent I can love the universal consciousness 
because I am the universal consciousness. Where Ramakrishna said, if you cannot love people, then how can you claim to love God? Because man is the most perfect manifestation of God on the face of this earth. There is not yet on the face of this earth a form of life which manifests God as much as man. The DNA of the human being, I'm not saying it can't get better. It can and probably will. But right now, in the 19th century when Ramakrishna said that, that was his truth. No, he said there are people who say, oh, I can't stand people. People are treacherous. People are assholes. I like dogs, puppies. No, they are loyal. If you can love dogs and you cannot love human beings, you are severely skewed. Because the, the human being is much more God than a dog. Even a dog is God. But a human being shines through way more than a dog. The divine nature, the Atman, is shining through to a much higher percentage than in a dog. Even if it is for the fact that the human being can talk articulated language to you. The human being can have consciousness, awareness. Who am I? What am I doing here? That is why, remember that there is no possible explanation for compassion and love your neighbor than this. You love your neighbor because you are Shiva and your neighbor is also Shiva. You are like two flowers on the same tree. At a superficial view, this flower is separate from this flower. They sit on two neighboring branches and they look at each other. Two cherry flowers, transient, ephemeral, blossoming in April, like they do, no, like they just did. No, but those two cherry flowers, as long as they are cherry flowers, they belong to the same tree. There is the same sap which made them blossom and there is the same tree which sustains them for a day or two while they blossom and they are flowers. Therefore, those two flowers are different and at the same time they are same, same. They are completely the same thing. It's the same with the human beings. You sit there, I sit here. It's the same consciousness. There's only one actor playing these roles. The fact that we can't see it we can understand, most people can understand this only theoretically, intellectually, like they don't have a feeling of it. This is the very cause of egoism. Because I think, no, I cannot be him. And I'm, there are so many idiots in this world. Do you mean I'm one with them? That's the paradoxical thing. That when you have a cherry tree, you have also bark of that tree and leaves of that tree and root of that tree and cells belonging to the stem of the tree. And if the stem of the tree would break, the flowers would die or wouldn't even appear anymore because the tree was damaged beyond a certain limit. Remember that it takes a lot of leaves and a lot of bark and a lot of trunk to make the cherry flowers possible. There are Ramakrishnas and Teresa of Avilas on the face of this earth and then there is a lot of cannon fodder. There is a lot. There are billions of totally anonymous souls who passed through and they never became flowers. But what if those souls were the stem of the tree and they were the leaves and they were the root and the bark and some of them were retarded idiots. But they are part of a 
billions of people and whole nature on planet Earth, and they are part of the economy of that. I made this analogy another time. In a body, if we are all a body, then in a body there are cells which fulfill a noble role, and there are cells which don't fulfill such a noble role. Like, if you would be a cell in the organism of God, maybe you would like to be a cell in the muscle of the heart, or maybe you would like to be a cell in the brain, a nerve cell. Guess what? In a body you have asshole cells as well. There are cells in the rectum, in the rectal ampoule, in the anus. And if you take those away, the brain and the heart will not be happy, and very soon they are going to die. That's why, in a global view, it's not only nerve cells, it's not only enlightened beings, it's not only those enlightened beings are piggybacking on the back of the masses, on the back of the cannon fodder. And Jesus noticing this, Jesus saying, I am the blossom. But there is so much which in this humanity nourishes me. He called himself, I am the son of man. And that's why, like the son of humanity, not only son of God, the part of God is the avatar which came in the world. But there is also the fact that I have the DNA of a human being. I'm born of a woman who has human DNA. Therefore, I'm part of this. And that's why, remember again and again, that that's why there exists compassion and love. There is compassion and love because God loves himself. Shiva looks and sees Shiva and says, gosh, I'm beautiful. Gosh, I'm wonderful. This is where it comes from. It's not an emotional sugar-coated, oh, you should love everybody. And you should, many people feel like, oh, you know, this kind of sugar-coated love. No, especially more intellectual people, more mental people, sometimes more Manipura people. They Feel the PBGBs when it comes to these emotional, sugar-coated types of love. And they feel it so superficial and so silly. But the real love, the essence of love, is the love which comes with a metaphysical full understanding. We love because of oneness. The guru of Swami Lakshmanju, one of the last holders of the lineages of Kashmiri Shaivism in India, in Kashmir, he used to give him, and to the whole world, the following example. He said, you don't understand that life loves itself. That's why life has self-preservation. Life is unbeatable. A comet hit the earth 60 million years ago and almost extinguished life. They say it extinguished dinosaurs and I don't know what. And yet life, and yet life, has continued. Life is stubborn. Life is irrepressible. Like life loves itself. It doesn't give up. There is a will behind life. There is something which pushes this life. And that something is the Shiva consciousness. That, sham that something is the divine consciousness. The guru of Swami Lakshmanju, he said, try to localize a worm, a rain worm or something, and try to squash it like about to kill it. And you are going to see that the worm defends itself. It tries to hide. It tries to disappear. Because even a worm loves itself. It loves the life which is in itself. Because that life doesn't belong to the worm. 
that life is the Shiva consciousness, that life is the universal life. That's why we have love and compassion. It's so difficult to put into action this statement that you should love your neighbor like you love yourself. But you should love your neighbor. To, uh, that doesn't mean absurd things because people are emotionally immature and they don't know what love is and then they try to overdo it. They jump into the opposite extreme. If I'm not selfish, that's not... Remember, Jesus himself lived in this world and he didn't heal all the lepers and all the blind and give money to all the beggars and the poor. And that's not, that, that, that's not what it means to love your neighbors. He acted on a much, much more essential level and he offered to humanity something way, way more important than giving some money to a beggar. And then three months later you find out that they spend the money on alcohol or drugs or something. That's not really love. That's a very childish, emotionally immature, silly understanding of what love really is or what it could be. And that's why understand this law that you should love your neighbor. It is fundamental because we are all related. And those of you who are intelligent and a bit enlightened or whatever, you are piggybacking on a lot of retarded idiots who live out there. They are, not to be sh they are not to be flushed down the toilet. They belong to the universal wave of life. That's the unpleasant thing. Because in the modern times, many philosophers coming from a materialistic thing, there exists an infamous document of manipulation of this planet, which simply says the first lines of this infamous document, which is about 110 years old, it says something incredible. It says, at a very simple observation, we can notice that in humanity, negative tendencies are dominating. People are stupid, animalistic, selfish, materialistic, demonic. And given this, then we have to take a strong leadership over these people and treat them like the cattle that they are. That's where it differs from Jesus. Jesus also noticed that people are shit because even his own disciples disowned him when they were asked to choose. When they asked Peter, do you know this guy? You are with Jesus. And he said, oh no, phew, God behave. No, I was not with Jesus. I don't know this man. Peter, Peter who had seen him raising Lazarus from the dead a few days before. And he was so afraid for his own skin that he said, I don't know this man. So didn't Jesus know what humanity is made of when his own apostles were ready to deny him after just two days just because they were afraid to be lynched on to share his faith? What would have happened in the history of humanity if Peter and John and the likes of them would have come forth and they said, yeah, if you crucify him, crucify us as well because we are with him. We are his people. They didn't. The pressure was so strong, they chickened out. So Jesus knew. Humanity is made of a lot of selfish imbeciles. But he didn't say you should rule them like slaves. You should treat them like cattle. He simply said, well, then you should have compassion. You should have love. Like those are your less gifted brothers and sisters. And they live here for a purpose. Maybe they are the bark of the tree on which you are going to blossom. So don't underestimate their importance. They are part of a bigger reality and therefore respect them. 
love them because they are part of this wholeness. That's why truly understanding organically the compassion, the idea of compassion of Buddha is very, very important because Buddha has noticed in another way, not in an anahata way, but in more in an ajna way, he has noticed somewhere the oneness of all things. If there is no oneness of all things, there is no reason for compassion or for love, for universal love. This appears only because of the oneness. Remember, the worm loves itself, and that's because the Shiva consciousness, as tiny as it is, which exists in that worm, loves itself. It says, I've made myself into a worm, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful the way it is. Life is happy about life. It continues according to its own mysterious rules. And that's why I wanted to stop on this idea of compassion of the Buddha so that you yourselves ask yourselves how much compassion is there in your life. See, with love, it's more like fake it till you make it. Because with love, it's like you can say, yeah, Jesus says love your neighbor. But you know what? My heart is dead. I don't love myself. I am cynical. I am skeptical. And now you are asking me to play as if I am loving everybody. I can fake it till I make it. But honest to God, I don't really feel it. But with compassion, Buddha has defined it like compassion is a loving kind. It starts from a loving kindness. Loving kindness is more like the Manipura type of compassion. And many people see it in the Buddhist environment. That you go in the Buddhist environments and they take care of a grasshopper and they smile and they are always very happy like to see you. And many people say, oh, there is so much heart. There isn't. You are ignorant in terms of the chakras because it's not about love from the heart. Those people, all these Buddhist smiling people, either they are Thai or Tibetan or Japanese, they have almost zero Anahata chakra. They have a very, very pleasant Manipura chakra. This is loving kindness from Manipura. It's kindness, kindness. Remember that even a king can have a very good Manipura. For example, a king can be benign. And you come in the presence of a benign king, and the king is generous and forgiving. And, and everybody says, wow, what a wonderful king. What a religious king, what a dharmic king. Like the people of Thailand love the king of Thailand for being such a king. And therefore, this is starting from Manipura. It's more easy to build it because Buddha has built a two-step system. If you don't feel yet compassion, then at least start from loving kindness. Think constantly about the fact that you have to be kind and loving and manifest a smile. Don't disturb the harmony of your neighbors. Be kind. Every time when you can, be generous. Be benign. Save lives. Spare people around you of suffering. You are not yet feeling compassion, but at least you are having loving kindness. And this loving kindness is a sort of, a, it's the Buddhist way of faking it till you make it. Because when you experience it for a long time 
And when you do meditation and you go in Ajna Chakra, the combination of the spiritual sublimation, awareness, Ajna, plus the basis of loving kindness, creates the necessary cocktail for creating golden yellow in your aura and creating thus true feelings of compassion. That's why it is of course very useful for everyone to start with loving kindness, with this metta, as it is called. Now many people interpret it like love, but metta, this loving kindness, is not the same love with the Christian love. Because this is a, a beautiful Manipura, and that one is a beautiful Anahata. It's a different, different nations and different religions, different traditions, they start from different places with their spiritual path. And in Asia, the Anahata path, except in South Asia, India that is, in the rest of Asia, as I said so many times, Anahata is not so strong and not so characteristic. It's more from Manipura. Like in the traditional Thai culture, Thai people when they really like you, like if, if you'll see this if they don't treat you as a farang. If they treat you as a farang, they just want you out of their lives as soon as you paid the money, then sneeze the money, cough the money and go away. You know, it's like we don't want to have anything to do with you. But if they conceive for a second that they might have something to do with you, it's a typical Thai custom that somebody who kind of would like to get close to you just comes and sits beside you without saying anything. They just come and sit on a bench. And it's like a Zen thing, you know, it's like a meditation. It's a sort of a contemplation. And intuitively, they do a sort of a Samyama with you, like they try to feel you. Samyama, for those of you who don't know the Sanskrit word, it means identification. They try to identify with you in an empirical way, like they haven't been educated in yoga, but it's a folklore, it's a, it's a tradition of, of their people. And they stay beside you, and then they, you know, when they finally stayed for five minutes without saying anything, they might clap you on the shoulder or look at you and smile and say, you, are, you have a good heart, you are a, good, you are a nice person. That is not a samyama at the level of the heart. That is a samyama at the level of Manipura. It simply says, you are your Manipura, I like your Manipura. You and I have nice, kind Manipuras. You, of course, know very well that there are so many horrible Manipuras in this world. There are so many disharmonious Manipuras. So actually, to find somebody with a nice Manipura is a great pleasure. Of course, you can say, what about Anahata? Well, it's not their concern for the time being. It's they follow a different line of action. If you'd go in a bhakti yoga place in India, they would care about your anahata. In other places, they would care about your Manipura because daily life for them happens at the level of Manipura, Svadhisthana. That's what matters in the daily life. And therefore, if your Manipura is nice, then you'll be nice. For example, they always appreciate generosity. Try sometimes to stop being stingy backpackers. I know it's, you know it's difficult because many of you are on some budget, but sometimes just as an exercise for a week, try to give fat tips, like to a taxi driver, to something. You know, when it costs 70, give them 100, just to see their face. In their world, you suddenly become a very good person. 
you are very good. And why? Because it didn't come from the heart. It's just money after all. Yeah, but money is an energy on Manipura. So on Manipura, it matters very much. When you are generous like a king, you are worshipful. You are adorable on Manipura. It doesn't say anything about your Anahata, but what if I don't care about your Anahata and I want to meet your Manipura? That's why understand that when we speak about loving kindness and compassion, we start from a different base, but the final aspect is still the oneness of all things. Buddha has built another path to the top of the mountain, starting from other original conditions. And one of his great sayings is the following. Whatsoever may be the cause of your suffering, do not wound another. It's one of the most difficult ones. Because when people suffer, they become really, really nasty. It's the famous thing which hunters know that you should always use extreme caution ten times more than usually when you approach a wounded animal. Any wounded animal is a terror, is really dangerous. Human beings tend to do the same with the exception of the fact that we are not animals and we shouldn't behave like animals, but in this particular respect we do. As a Roman proverb says, the true character of people is known in adversity. Like when people get hurt, that's when you can see who they really are. A person who smiles and is nice, and one day they get hurt physically or emotionally or mentally, and they turn into hell, that person doesn't have a good character eventually. The good character, the loving kindness, the compassion is seen when you are in trouble, when you have physical pain, when you are sick, when you have emotional pain, when you are hurt, when you are disappointed, when you are in the dark night of your soul, and all those, that's when you see what a human being is made of. That's why Buddha is very right. He says, whatsoever may be the cause of your suffering, do not wound another fundamental. If people would use this much, we would live in a world which would be three times more paradise-like than it is today. Just this one teaching of Buddha, if it would be universally applied, it would change this world, world radically. Just this. Because so many people I have seen who hurt others and their justification is that they have pain. They have trouble. Yeah, but what did you want me to do? I was in agony. I was confused. I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel this. I didn't feel that. Is that an excuse for hurting others? For selfish people? Yes. For people who cannot control their minds and emotions? Yes. But for the people who are compassionate? No. Buddha does not consider that an excuse. Do whatever you do. Walk five kilometers in the jungle and howl like a wolf when nobody can hear you. Bang your head against a coconut tree until blood is gushing from the skin of your forehead. Do whatever you do, but don't hurt others. Why do you need to hurt anybody else? What does it serve? 
It doesn't serve anything. It's just a primitive form of identification. It's an animal, biological almost form of identification where we feel that we share our burden. It's like I'm carrying a stone which is too hard and I would like to lean on your shoulder and put half of the weight on yours. Of course it feels lighter for me, but if I didn't ask for permission, if you are not ready to do that out of compassion, then it shouldn't be done. Milarepa was dying in agony and the people, the man who had poisoned him simply challenged him and he said, I don't even think you have pain. You know, it's like you are just an imposter. You are just, probably you know enough yoga and you burned my poison in your body and you don't even suffer and now you try to capitalize on it and look like a martyr. Like this man had the incredible manipuristic cheek that he was mocking Milarepa while Milarepa was dying of the poison that this guy had administered. He had poisoned him and it was not enough that he had poisoned him and the man was dying. He was mocking him. He was trying to destroy him psychologically and mentally. And at some point, he started directly. It was like with Jesus on the cross when they told him, if you really are the son of God and save so many, why can't you just get off that cross? You know, make like this and get off the cross. It's as simple as that. And Jesus had to fight with that incredible temptation. And Milarepa had something similar. This guy was telling him, if you really feel so much pain as you claim you do, which I don't believe, then uh, send me, you are a yogi, give me a little bit of your pain. Make me share your pain, make me feel your pain, so that I can acknowledge that indeed you are in agony. Milarepa never gave in to that temptation. How much of a temptation would be to give it back, like not forever, but just a little bit back, so that the asshole should learn a lesson. It's, it's, it's not to torture him. It's just to teach him a lesson. Milarepa never did. He projected his pain onto a boulder and the rock cracked. So much tension there was. He projected, at the second injunction, he projected it on a door, a wooden door, and the, the wood in the door started, started bending and there was a moaning sound coming from the twisting of the door like the door was wailing in agony just because Milarepa had put a bit of the pain in it that's why I'm saying that this statement of Buddha is sometimes very hard to follow also Buddha had his harder edge to it and he said a harder thing which I'll not stop too much on commenting. Whoso hurts and harms living creatures, destitute of sympathy for any living thing, let him be known as an outcast. Buddha was still wearing the grudge of the Hindu caste system because they were, tra they were transforming some people into outcasts. And Buddha himself said the caste system is obsolete. It's over. There is no more caste. Of course, the Hindus still keep it today, 25 centuries later. But Buddha has declared him, as far as he was concerned, he simply declared there is no caste system. This Buddha who hated the outcast and all this, the discriminations, he nevertheless said, talking to his monks, that those who really break these laws of compassion, they are 
kind of outcasts. He seems to contradict himself a little bit here, but he meant don't keep bad company. That's something which comes from yoga. The yogis have said, maybe everyone is, everybody is Shiva, maybe you should love everyone. It doesn't mean that you should live in the same hut with everyone. Like you should take spiritual company, like in Agama, so that you can thrive in your practice. You can progress, you can be encouraged in your aspiration and in your practice. When you are a practitioner, you don't want to go too much with people that are atheistic, materialistic, skeptical, cynical, sarcastic as the devil, with big problems, disturbed, with no heart, because they are going to pull you down. When you become like Milarepa, then you will take on those people. Then you can manifest your love towards those people. But when you are too weak to take that, you should cultivate good company. That's why here Buddha addresses to the monks and says, don't misunderstand foolishly in a Svadhisthanistic hippie way my statement that, oh, everybody should be loved and there should be compassion. There should be compassion and everybody should be loved. It doesn't mean you have to sleep with them in the same bed. That's not the meaning of this, especially as long as it's going to pull you down. If you don't manage to save yourself, how are you going to save others? I had a Buddhist bag. I was wearing my things when I was coming to class years ago on a Buddhist bag. And there was a sutra written in Thai language on it. And I was very surprised because I asked some Thai people to translate that sutra to read it for me. And that sutra was wonderful. It simply said, take care of yourself. It sounds very selfish. But the truth is that if you don't take care of yourself and try to play Messiah while you are not, that will not justify love. It's a hippie, svadhisthanistic, superficial misunderstanding of the concept of love because you can love only this much and then you're going to be terminated, exhausted, burned out and then where was your love? Isn't the intelligent thing to do the greater love? Well, the greater love is first of all done by putting yourself on a solid ground, by making sure that you've got a solid ground and then from there you can really pull, you can really help, you can really bless. That's why it is not contradicting love and it is not con compassion and it is not contradicting his idea of no caste. He means an outcast like you should understand this in a mature way. There are moments where you can do some things and moments where you cannot do some things. Francis of Assisi was kissing the wounds of the lepers. And even Ramakrishna kissed a few lepers and apparently healed them. And a Hindu doctor, I forgot his name, Ranavale something, one, a great famous doctor, being not a yogi, not compassionate, not a mystical person, he was a sort of naturally merciful. He tried to alleviate the fate of the lepers of India, which were hundreds of thousands of them, and he created the first big colony for lepers and so on. Problem was, there's this doctor, Dilvale, or whatever his name was, he got leper. He got leprosy himself. After cohabitating with the lepers for 20 years, he got leprosy. And he shot himself. He committed suicide. He couldn't take it to see the leprosy coming on him. 
There is another story, Damian, Father Damian of Molokai, a Christian father from Hawaii. There was an island for the lepers in Hawaii. And this was the priest of that island. Guess what? He got the leprosy also. And he didn't commit suicide. He was a mystical Christian priest. He did his karma yoga and he lived with this leprosy. He became one of the family. Funny thing is, funny in one way, that modern medicine has discovered that most of the forms of leprosy are not even contagious. It was just a stupid superstition of some people. And today it can be healed relatively easy. Not in a holistic way, but at least it can be healed on some of its superficial aspects quite easily, such as the disfiguring aspect of it, and so on. And that's why, uh, that's why I'm saying, you know, you shouldn't try to kiss the leper's wounds unless you are Francis of Assisi or Damien of Molokai, and you can do that. Because otherwise you're going to destroy yourself and you're going to end in suicide because you tried to live in shoes which are way too big for your size. You're trying to play Messiah when you are not. And Buddha knows what people are made. And he said, it's not for it's for me, but for you, stay away. And another of his statements is, goodwill towards all beings is the true religion. Cherish in your heart boundless goodwill to all that lives. To this, the shamans, some enlightened shamans, I don't mean enlightened necessarily that they reach nirvana, but I mean enlightened in the meaning of superior, higher level shamans, they have added even the things which apparently don't live. Like, there is life in everything. According to shamanism, there is life in a mountain. There is life in a computer. There are beings there. And that's why this goodwill should ultimately be extended to the whole manifestation. So again, goodwill, goodwill, you see, it's will, will on Manipura. Goodwill, have a goodwill. This is not from the heart, it's from Manipura. But believe me, Manipura, if people would have a loving kindness, Manipura would live in such a wonderful world. Goodwill towards all beings is the true religion. This is the statement of Buddha himself. He meant by religion Dharma, because religo is a Latin word which was used in Christianity, and religo means something else. It means to reconnect. The human being was in the kingdom of in the in the garden of paradise, and they fell out of grace, and through Jesus and his love, they can reconnect with God. Religo. You can come back like the prodigal son. Buddha was 500 years before Jesus. He doesn't speak about <coughs> reconnecting, <coughs> especially because Buddha <coughs> is not talking about a personal God. And therefore, Buddha is not talking about reconnecting with anything. Of course, there is reconnection. But the word which is translated here in English as religion is the word dharma, the order of the universe, the righteousness, the way things should be, the ultimate morality and ethics. And Buddha says, goodwill towards all beings is the true religion. Like cultivate 
start from there. It's more easy, see, because many of you may have blockages on Anahata. You come to Agama, we teach you how to work on Anahata. And those of you who are karmically blocked and severely blocked on Anahata, I sometimes look at you and say, okay, if you do two hours of Anahata yoga per day, in about two years, your Anahata, like, it's a lot of work, two hours per day for two years. It means like we're not dealing with trifles here. We are dealing with karmic things. We are dealing with existential issues. It's not easy to change the profile, the psychological profile, the spiritual profile, the resonance of a human. For some of you, it doesn't take two hours, two, uh, two years, two hours per day, because some of you already have a nice semi-open heart chakra, and then it's easy to step into it. But if I encounter somebody that has real karmic blockages, and in your previous life you betrayed love, and now love is giving you what you deserve, like you cannot reach love, and you try and try and try, and somehow that door doesn't open for you as a lesson, because you need to learn a lesson, <clears throat> so you should stop slamming the door in the face of love, and you should stop betraying love. That's just your karmic lesson for this life, and so on. And then when I see you, I say, okay, work on Anahata. There's a blockage there. But maybe some of you who are blocked on Anahata have a reasonably good Manipura. That often is the case. And therefore, why not starting, in, if you cannot feel love and all that, why not starting from goodwill? Goodwill, loving kindness. Do it from Manipura if you cannot do it from Anahata. Learn from the Japanese monks. Anahata is a city in Tibet as far as they are concerned. You know, there's not much Anahata in the Japanese culture. But can they be kind? Yes. Those of them who are spiritual and who don't take out the samurai sword and cut people, those of them who are not Yakuza's and other similar things, they can be very kind. Especially the monks, the ones that follow the Dharma. That's why... This is the definition of Buddha himself. He says, goodwill towards all beings is the true religion. It is Buddha who somewhere else said in the same vein, he said, in the end of life, like when you get the karma for your next life, in case you didn't reach full liberation, in the end of a life, when you go to the so-called judgment day, you know, where you find out your next destination, in the end, Buddha said, Nobody will ask you if you believed in some God or not. But you are going to be asked about what you did. It's your deeds which matter. How great the difference in this between the fake wisdom, the preposterous, the distorted lack of wisdom of some of the Protestant, Calvinistic and Neo-Protestant Christian thinkers who came out with a bullshit, inconceivably skewed theory that uh, actually whatever you do, even if you do prayer and morality and charity and whatever, God has already decided who of you is going to be saved and who is going to go to fire in the end of the cosmic cycle. And therefore, it doesn't matter that you what you do. It matters that you should just keep on believing in Jesus Christ. And you have Englishmen in East India Company, making China addicted to opium. They are just pirates and buccaneers and opium trade, drug 
peddlers and they considered themselves so much superior to the Chinese and to the Indians because they believed in Jesus Christ. And in the moment when you as a greedy British, because those who succeeded in this East, East India Company, they created Debenham and Tottenham or whatever in Oxford Circle, all those big supermarkets, you know, all the Harrods and this, they are made by those people who milked in the British Empire, all the colonial things, and they put China on opium. They addicted China to opium. It's blood money which made that. And all those people said, well, if the last day is coming, when the last day is coming, you are just going to die. And when they shoot you, you should just say Jesus and Mary and this, and you are going to go to paradise. It's such a jerk of bullshit, according to Buddha, this thing. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter what you believe in. It matters what karma you have created. That's the thing which truly matters. And that's why it's goodwill which is the true religion. Because if all you do is just lip service and you actually kill people and say, yeah, but I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ disowns you, sends you to hell for a good lesson and says, see you again in 5,000 years after you gnashed your teeth for a long, long time, then you will be mature to understand what a stupid mistake you've done. Like, love does not mean weakness. God can love you, and still God allows death to happen, because it's necessary for the economy of life, and God allows other things way more terrible than death to happen, and hells exist, as well as paradises, infernos exist, because they are necessary. They are the place where one learns a bitter lesson. And that's why here I think Buddha is so down to earth with this one. Because he says it simply. Goodwill towards all beings. This is the true religion. Like don't give me lip service and fancy theologies. If you cannot have goodwill towards beings. Then it is. Many people would say but Swami. Uh, in some yoga halls you have ordered, and it doesn't happen, uh, you have ordered uh, mosquito zappers, insect killers. How does that fit with the teaching of compassion of Buddha? It's the greater good. The mosquitoes, especially at this time, they transmit you dengue fever and chikenkunia. Some people, if they get dengue fever three times in a row, they can have internal bleeding and die. That's not going to happen in Agama. I prefer a thousand mosquitoes to die than you to get dengue fever three times. It's a choice which is made between the great, which is the greater good of all of them. If I could find a solution, not if you would keep that door closed carefully and so on, probably there wouldn't be any mosquitoes in a protected space. We tried all the possible to put mosquito net to the last millimeter of it and still sometimes it happens. That's why I'm saying Take it with a pinch of salt. It's not possible to... Jesus walked. Have you ever been told that Jesus was looking down circumspectly all the time not to squash snails and cockroaches and ants? Maybe Jesus squashed a number of ants in his life. Does it mean he was not compassionate? Should he have become like the giant monks who walk like animals on all four, trying very carefully not to squash the slightest insect? That's very laudable as intention, but it's very narrow-sighted. It's a very narrow-minded approach 
where you don't see the big picture, that there is always a gain and a loss. In this nature where we live, people die. In this nature where we live, the lions attack the gazelles and sometimes they catch them and they eat them. And sometimes the lion gets too old and too weak and he cannot catch gazelles anymore. And then he looks and the teeth fall out of his mouth and he dies getting old and decrepit. No, nature is not always nice to see. When you watch on National Geographic, they always clip out the bloody and cruel scenes, but then you don't see really the way nature is. Nature contains devoration and death and the big fish eating the small fish. And these are laws of nature which don't come because any of us is selfish or wicked. Even if the human beings would completely disappear off the face of this earth, and nature with all the animals and the other things would continue the same cycles, the same ecological cycles which are there. That's why uh, I'm saying take it with a pinch of salt, understand that from the standpoint of compassion, you have to see the full picture. It cannot be interpreted in a fanatic, narrow-minded way. Cherish, says Buddha, in your heart, boundless goodwill all that lives. Why? Because life is a miracle. Today, the scientists, even in countries which 50 years ago were fighting against communism and were blaming the communists for how bad people they were because they were atheistic, such as America, and the educational system has come to the point where actually, you know, you always are going into denial of life, like in school you learn that life most probably appeared by some lightnings in the primordial atmosphere of the earth and uh, from there there appeared methane and ammonia and I don't know what other molecules and these are organic chemistry molecules and that's the big... I have studied science for long enough and everybody here who knows enough chemistry, physics or biology knows that what I say is true. The fact that you can put a few lightnings through some gases and get some ammonia or methane doesn't prove anything. It does, what is the link between those gases or substances and an amoeba? Can anybody in this world take 15 grams of ammonia and 15 grams of um, methane and combine them and do and boil them and use the pincers, pincers and microscopes and ultraviolet rays and this and that and suddenly have an amoeba which works and lives? No. Nobody until today has transformed matter into life. There has not been one single experiment which even came close. Which means we are completely at a loss to understand what life is. These are shameless speculations of some scientists who claim to teach you. And when I was 16 years old, I believed in it. I was growing up in an atheistic country. I am I'm a technical-minded person, physics, chemistry. And I said, well, that's the best scientific explanation that we have. Later, when I looked again with the spiritual eyes at the same thing, I had to reframe my own knowledge, my own past, because I realized I had been brainwashed in school because those people gave me, as with assurance, they gave me something which was not true, not provable in any way, but being a young man, I was impressionable and I took it in without chewing on it a little bit and seeing if it made sense. Today, 
exception made of some ultra-religious schools, this is what is being taught in schools, that life appeared from methane and ammonia with some lightnings and something like that. No. But Buddha says, cherish in your heart boundless goodwill to all that lives, because life is God. Life is a miracle. With the, without the existence of Purusha, the transcendental spirit, we cannot explain the existence of life. There is no chemical or phys physical mechanism discovered or in any perspective discoverable soon which can explain how you can put together the ectoplasm and the membrane, blow on it, and suddenly you've got a living creature. We cannot create life. People who do genetical experiments, they take life forms and they fiddle with their DNA. And if it dies, it dies, and then you try with another one. But they cannot make fresh ones. We are not creators of life. Exception made, of course, by parenting. When you make children, you become a co-worker because you create life with your own body as part of this great miracle. Buddha sees this very clearly when he says, cherish boundless goodwill to all that lives. Because life is the most visible expression of God. Some esoteric schools in the West, in Europe, they called it fire and ice, that the universe is made of fire and ice. And ice is death, sand, dust, the cold, dark universe, and matter which is dead. And life is metabolism, burning, sparkling in your eyes. L fire, I'm sorry, fire is life. So fire and ice are fighting with each other. Who is going to win? Global death or global life? This fire, which is life itself, this fire is, Buddha says, cherish it. Because we can't create it. We don't have a clue even today of what it is. And it is a divine creation. Cherish life. Because in life you can see the first manifestation. It's true. Skeptical scientists, they don't see it that way because they don't want to see it. But if you look at it with metaphysical eyes, Buddha says, goodwill to all that lives. Another wonderful statement, a few more, and then we'll stop for tonight. The distinctive signs, says Buddha, of true religion, and again by religion he means dharma, the real dharma. Buddha is trying to redefine dharma as separate from Hinduism and the Vedic culture. What is dharma truly? And he says the distinctive signs of true religion are goodwill, love, truthfulness, purity, nobility of feeling, and kindness. Many of these statements of Buddha show also, like besides goodwill, which I explained, that it comes from Manipura and can go to Ajna, they show also a lot of Vishuddha chakra. Look how many terms Buddha is using which apply to a good. He says truthfulness. Truthfulness or Satyam is an impeccable resonance at the level of Vishuddha. It is expressing reality as it is. Purity. Purity is a word which archetypally 
resonates with Vishuddha Chakra. Nobility of feelings. Noble feelings. Noble feelings. Think of, of it. Are your feelings noble? Many people don't even want to be noble. Today we live in such a Svadhisthanistic stupid time that you have a movie like Kingdom of Heaven where a stupid blacksmith from a village is offered knighthood. He goes and cohabitates with the king of Jerusalem and defends and speaks with Saladin and he behaves as a noble man. And then he comes back to his French village and gives up being a noble and prefers being a blacksmith. That's so much democratic bullshit. Because noble is noble is noble. Whoever is noble doesn't want to go back down to living in the mud and all that. It's just the illusion of some Svadhisthanistic filmmakers who make stupid movies like The Last Temptation of Christ where they show Jesus Christ getting a blowjob from Mary Magdalene or something. Sure, you can make a movie like this, but it's not noble. It in between the lines, you are smearing the image of Jesus by just asking the very legitimate question, what if? But it's not noble. You don't like the nobility. You don't like the fact that Jesus is up there on a pedestal and it's noble. You need to smear him with shit a little bit. So he should be a little bit more like you. But the truth is that people like Buddha and Milarepa, they are noble. They have reached a natural nobility. It's not an aristocratic nobility. It's not a social nobility. It's the nobility of feelings. It's the nobility of Vishuddha Chakra, which simply says, no, like Buddha says, Preach the message which I have given you so that all the people in the world can become citizens of righteousness or whatever he said in his discourse. That's a noble thought. When you think big, when you really have a noble intention, not just living in a cup of tea, you know, living in a small tiny universe and being a petty spirit. Which are the noble feelings? Compassion is a noble feeling. Purity is a noble feeling. Others, truthfulness, brahmacharya is a noble feeling. You know, these are noble feelings. Like I want to extract, I come from the dust, but I want to stand up from the dust and look to heaven. It is my right to be of dust, from dust to dust, but also I am a child of heaven. There is spirit in me. That's why this nobility ennobles. Meditate, because we don't comment it in the yoga courses too much, but this word, nobility of feelings, and what would be noble feelings? Many people, if they would stay now and then, and they would think like, oh gosh, my feelings are not too noble right now. Like you know what noble feelings mean, and what are unworthy, degrading feelings. Therefore, Buddha gives it as a distinctive sign of spirituality. He says the distinctive sign of true Dharma, of being in harmony with the Dharma, is goodwill, love. Here he points at Anahata. If the meaning of the word love is the same, 
that is very difficult to say because you know that translation from a language to another language, from Pali to Sanskrit or whatever, and then to English and so on, can change a lot of meanings, a little twist of the meaning of the word, and we are saying something else. So, goodwill, love, I'm not saying that again that Buddha had zero anahata, obviously not, but it was not his dominant theme in his There was plenty of anahata there, and he could see it and act from it, but he did not preach the way of the heart as much as Rumi, for example, has preached the way of the heart. So back to him, distinctive signs are goodwill, love, truthfulness, purity, nobility of feeling, and kindness. Lots couple of words on Manipura Chakra, goodwill and kindness, about three words on Vishuddha, truthfulness, purity, nobility of feeling, and one word which could be on Anahata, love. This is, these are the values. So, you can remember this and think, you know, are you a dharmic person? The ideals of the Vedic life were Artha, Kama, Dharma, Moksha. Dharma is one of the four legs of the Vedic cow. The cow stands on four legs, stable. That's the success, the spiritual life. And one of them is Dharma, which means to respect the cosmic order and to cultivate morality and ethics. Buddha says, you are a person aligned with the Dharma when you have goodwill, love, truthfulness, purity, nobility of feeling, and kindness. A bit more. All beings, says Buddha, long for happiness. Therefore, extend your compassion to all. It's just the Kashmiri Shaivistic statement. There is one God, and that God lives in all. Shiva loves Shiva. All beings long for happiness. That's the natural. Everything goes towards Ananda. When Yudhishthira in the Mahabharata was asked by his father Dharma, what is inevitable? He didn't answer with a stupid question, with a stupid sentence, death and taxes. He said, what is inevitable? Yudhishthira asked his father Dharma. And Yudhishthira being a sage, being a true wise man, He said happiness. Happiness is inevitable. You are all doomed to be happy because all of you will sooner or later reach nirvana. Happiness is inevitable. You are heading towards bliss, all of you. Therefore, all the beings are longing for happiness. It is our birthright. It is we are headed towards it. It's written in our genes. It is the Dharma of this universe. It is the will of Dharma that everybody in this room one day shall be a Buddha. Therefore, blissful, beatific, happy indeed, in ecstasy. Therefore, since all beings long for happiness, understand them. Apply those noble feelings and that purity and realize that beings long for happiness, although in many wrong places, Rapists long for happiness. Thieves long for happiness. Murderers long for happiness. Workaholics 
long for happiness. Drug addicts long for happiness. Many people long for happiness in all the wrong places, but you can extend your compassion to all. To extend your compassion towards a drug addict, it doesn't mean you should give them more drugs or money to buy more drugs. Maybe compassion means to tie them to a tree with a chain for a month or two until they go through the cold turkey. You know, maybe that's the best thing to do. It's difficult to decide what compassion means in actual life because in any circumstance, compassion can mean one or another thing. And you have to live a life focused on kindness and compassion to see where the greater good is. But one thing can be said for sure. Remember that even those that do miserable things, they ultimately would like to be happy. Unfortunately, some of them, they don't have the karma to be happy. And because they don't manage to be happy, they behave like wounded animals. They are like wounded animals and they are trying to drag everybody in the hell in which they live their lives. And that should not be condemned. That should be forgiven because all beings ultimately long for happiness. And he even says it further. Hatreds never cease by hatred. By love alone they cease. This is an ancient law. Buddha doesn't even say, I discovered this. He knew it from before. It's an ancient law. It's the law of resonance. Like, how can you destroy hatred with hatred? We fight against hatred. We fight against hatred. We hate hatred. Then we can't make it cease. Buddha is trying to say, and in some other places he said it more elegantly, because he said, Every time when an evil is forgiven, that negative karma disappears from the face of the earth. Like if I break your leg and you break mine in the next life and then again I come back and break yours and you break mine, we can continue a vendetta like this, life after life forever. When one of us gets responsible and wise, then that one, when his turn or her turn is coming, can put the foot down and say enough is enough. It stops here today. No more. I could break your leg. It is my turn to break your leg and it won't happen. It simply stops here. I forgive it. That's why Buddha from a different standpoint, you see, not like Jesus because you feel it from the heart, but in a more technical way, in a more Ajna type of way, Buddha has said it very clear. Like it's absurd to try to eradicate violence through violence. You cannot fight against fight. You cannot eliminate hatred with hatred. He says, by love alone they cease. This is an ancient law. Buddha simply says that's Dharma. It's not even Buddhism. It's an ancient law. And as you know, Jesus himself has uplifted has uphold that one it is enough for today this has given an idea there are more quotes but you can find them from studying the discourses of the buddha and his sayings it i just wanted it tonight to give us a feeling 
an experience of the way Buddha presented his path and this greatest gem of his path, which is compassion, issuing from loving kindness. Starting from a harmony on Manipura, kindness, kindliness, and loving kindness, and moving through Anahata Vishuddha with love and purity and noble feelings, and amounting eventually at the level of Ajna Chakra, at one of the highest energies that exists. Remember, above Ajna Chakra and the most magnificent emotion of Ajna Chakra, compassion, you can find only some emotion, and it's very hard to speak about that, which belongs to Sahasrara. Yes, the crown chakra has its own emotions, so to speak, and probably the one which can be defined a little bit is a feeling of sacredness. It's like when people find themselves in front of the divine, of the sacred, and they get goosebumps. They get like, it's a, you, you get crossed by shudders, and it's, you feel like you almost cannot speak loud. You are in awe. There is a shyness. There is a, a modesty. Like you are in awe in front, because this is the feeling of the sacred, that we are in the presence of the divine, of the transcendental, of the sacred. That's perhaps the one emotion which reflects not so much what we do to each other, but our personal aspiration, which would be even higher than compassion. But otherwise, compassion in the level of the Prakriti emotions, the emotions which belong to the six chakras, not to Sahasrara, which is a separate thing, then compassion is indeed ultimate. And I am advising you often to meditate on compassion because Agama is not, strictly speaking, a Buddhist school, but we are based on the Indian yoga, Kundalini yoga and all that. Kashmiri Shaiv is the tantric tradition of India. We do not teach here all the things of the Buddhist tradition because we simply don't have the place and the space and the time to actually teach everything. I would wish to make available for you all the spiritual methods, but everybody, we can do only what we can do. Nevertheless, feel inspired by the discourses of Buddha and try to meditate from time to time on compassion. Like, did you really ever in your life until today feel compassion? Like, really, really, really feel compassion? intensely, overwhelmingly, like have you been for five minutes in a state of dissolving compassion? Either it started from a sick dog on the street or from a miserable human being or from a meditation on nature or on Mother Earth or on the condition of humanity or simply meditating on the passion of the Christ or whatever other event or thing which can make awaken in you the feeling of compassion. But the question is, did you feel it? Did you shed tears? Did you dwell in it for five minutes? Did you go deep, deep into it? If you don't know what compassion is and you don't experience it a few minutes every day, you are missing a very, very important part of the human spectrum. Like human beings can feel 
anger, joy, love, enthusiasm, jealousy, industriousness, a lot of things. But human beings can also, theoretically, by the blueprint, it's somewhere there in the blueprint of each and every one of you, that you have a special place for compassion. And if you don't feel it, it's like you have a part of you which is numb. It's like a part of your being which is not used. You have a limb which you are not using. So use the limb of compassion. Wake it up because I can promise you'll fall in love with it. Once you experience compassion a few times, it becomes like a very sweet spiritual thing. Then you understand why Buddha and other spiritualists, they loved this noble thing. Okay, you don't mingle with a lower feeling. It's like, I can hear, I can listen to Lady Gaga or Madonna playing one of those stupid Svadhisthana Manipura pop songs of theirs, where even the verses are sometimes really idiotic. But if I have a noble feeling, it's like, I don't really like to dwell there. Sure, I've heard that song, but it's not my baby. It's not down my alley. Because I like to dwell in feelings which are noble. I don't, I don't like to dwell in things which are questionable. Yeah, everything belongs to the miracle of life and manifestation. But once you taste the higher things, they become preferable. Because they are noble feelings. That is how compassion is. And it would be a pity for you to have been born on earth, to have heard about Buddha Gautama, to have listened to the message of the Buddha, and yet not to have experienced profound, intense compassion for at least five minutes in this body in which you are. So strive, ask to be, a, to be given by Buddha himself by the great masters from Shambhala to be given a sample of compassion, to be shown how amazing it is when you feel compassion. With this, we have finished for tonight and we have finished with the teachings coming from the Buddha. And soon we are going to start analyzing some of the basic texts of yoga give you some commentaries on some of the fundamental texts of Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you all for joining. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.